to do with the title then? I mean, the research topic. Yeah, right. So I have a topic as well. Uh, actually, I mean, like, uh, I'm, I'm quite intrigued in one of the project that Mats is driving right now uh, uh-huh. around uh, what does it take uh, for industry to su- succeed in, in, uh, in the data and AI age? I think this is a brilliant topic, by the way. And, yeah. and I think for me, the topic is basically working on the people side, the operational side of, um, AI and tech. So yeah. I, 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 the, what I work on, on, on a daily basis is actually not executive level. It's almost not even middle manager level. It's quite operational, mm-hmm. but n- not the tech, the other stuff that you need to get right in order to succeed with data and AI. Yeah. And to be, if, you know, so here is the research topic around what's the operating model what how do you work uh, how do i work in interdisciplinary teams with between ai and data and business people how do i create a common lingo so we can work more efficiently together how do we have a common use case life cycle we have so many different ways where the technical ai part you know building the best model you can think of then we have the operational part yes you know making it work for real but we also have the organ organizational part of ai Yes, your title so, could be so organizational my, so, AI. So, so I want to do organizational and people, res- people ways of working uh-huh. research on AI. You should, and this is and and with the interdisciplinary uh, focus. I think the problem is not that we don't know how to do an AI process yeah. or, or an software development process or a business process. The problem is how do we now go from ideation mm-hmm. to production? Exactly. In at scale, uh, given we have uh, meeting a legacy analog domain yeah. with uh, a uh, data and AI domain, I, I I joke and say my father is a doctor, he speaks Latin, and here comes a new guy and speaks Python. How can <laughs> they work together? They, we need to give them a new language. This is a crucial uh, position. So I've this is my research, by the way. <laughs> Could you have me? Amazing. <laughs> I'm part of the a few um, projects. There are actually different people with different backgrounds. So one of the work and um, projects that I'm working on is about papers, uh-huh. cellulose papers. Yeah. And then people in the paper side, they have no idea about machine learning, exactly. AI, and exactly. so on. And we, I have my knowledge in papers. Is in zero. cellulose. I mean, like what is cellulose? What is cellulose? I mean, like now, now we are talking. Yeah, I guess it's mo- molecules. Some stuff like, like this. this. <laughs> yeah. And then, so we need someone to connect us to us. Because, for example, okay, I present what is AI to them. Okay. Uh, these are the benefits of using machine learning, deep learning to facilitate many processes. And then, after finishing uh, the presentation, I wait for them. Okay. Is anybody of you are interested to actually use these techniques in the work? Silence. And <laughs> after a while, I can't think, are you interested? Nobody answered. And someone explicitly answered, no, we are not interested at all. So what should I do? I need someone <laughs> to be able to translate what I mean yeah. in their domain. Yeah. I think that's a great topic in organizational AI. That, organizational uh, aspects of AI, something like this. Yeah. Yeah. And Amir, you're also in the process of becoming a docent, right? Yes. Or how do you say it in English? Do you say docent? Docent, or? yeah. Docent. docent. Yeah. I, I think it's a quite Swedish uh, title. Docent? So is, docent. Is, is that actually an English uh, uh, academic title or is it a Swedish one? That's only? a Swedish title. I, I think know. it is. Yeah. 
It's like licentiate, you know. It's licentiate. So it's like that's like a halfway PhD, and docent is like a double PhD, right? Or exactly. And, and again, licentiate is also the Swedish title, so we don't yeah. have it in any other yeah. countries, as as long as I know. And and why do one be, want to become a docent? So docent, as I mentioned, is a title that uh, gives this permission or promote people to be able to be the main supervisor of the PhD students because. Yes. If you have a PhD, you can be a supervisor of the PhD students, but as a co-supervisor, you cannot be alone. You cannot be alone. You should be with someone, a professor, a professor or someone who has docent, docent. not maybe uh, associate or someone. But and to be able to be the main supervisor of someone, you need to apply for the docent, and then when you receive the docentship, and then yeah, so it's, so it's, a, it's, it's really a certificate of your level of mastery that you have done PhD, you, you have done this, now you have co-supervised, exactly. now you're ready to supervise alone. And, then, and then basically, yes, I have on paper as a docent. Exactly, is, and shows that actually. you can be independently, yes. manage everything, you can. The whole project, so to speak. Yes, exactly. Which is then, so it makes complete sense from a, a career ladder. Exactly. That this is the natural progression. Yes. Cool. So let's, I think a lot of people are a bit confused now. So let's just try to summarize a bit the different, you know, titles that we have from yes. an academic point of view. And then you have work titles that you can have. And in Swedish, we have Universitetslektor. And that, I guess, is assistant, assistant professor. professor. Exactly. And you can become an associate professor, which is different from docent. And docent yeah. is just the academic title, right? Yes. And then you have a full professor and as well. Yeah, we have a tenure track, uh, actually, mm-hmm. planned for someone who goes to the... Uh, to apply for as a faculty in the university and in the tenure track you have these three steps assistant associate uh, full professor right. and then it will help you because after the assistant you need to apply to be associate mm-hmm. you can pass or fail yeah. but if you have a docent it will help you to yeah. pass this step right. yeah, yeah. And, and someone said to me a pr- full professor um, title or position is both. I mean, they say they claim potentially docent is the highest highest academic title. Yes. But others say that the professor is both an academic and work position. I don't know which is true there. Yeah. So uh, as long as I know, docent is a title, but the others are positions in the university. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, yeah, a lot of confusing things. And, you know, American uh, have different titles than, than Swedish one does, and UK have different with uh, lecturer and, and readers and whatnot. Yeah, exactly, and, different uh, topics. Why can't they just standardize everything? Yeah, and uh, during this uh, track, I mean, during this tenure track, so so ha- you have some time limit mm. to promote it from assistant to associate. Mm. So really? So if you don't do it, you can never do it? It's done. Oh, it's I four years, uh-huh. but from associate to full professor, there is no time limit. Right. And before the full professorship was uh, appointed by the government, right? But these days, or since the last twenty years or fifteen years or something, it's from the university, right? Uh, so actually, it's supported by the government. But anyway, if you want to be able to promote, you should have a students and to have a students, you mm-hmm. need to apply for the projects and receive funding to be able to make your own group. Yeah. Otherwise, if you want to work lonely, 
Mm. Yes, it's supported by the government, but of course you cannot. I, I think you know before because I'm, it's just tell pe- people how, how old I am. But but before I think in the beginning of nineties or something, then actually the professorship was appointed by the government, and then it was for life. Ah, so, yeah. but it's not that uh, way anymore, as far as I know, in the Swedish universities. I, I think, think it's, so, yeah. And think in Brazilian universities and things like that, they still have these kind of life yeah. positions, both for assistant professors and other things, if I remember correctly. But I'm assistant, not, sure. not, but from associate afterwards, mm. these permanent positions. So yeah. then, regardless of the funding, yeah. you still you have it. You still have it. Yeah. Awesome. Confusing, but very interesting, yeah. I think. Um, with that, you know, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks. I'm uh, We have known each other a number of years and collaborate from Peltarion to KTH yeah. in a number of projects, PhD students and whatnot. So it's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah. Um, so with that, how would you describe yourself? Who is Amir Peibara? Yeah. yeah, first of all, thanks for inviting me for to, to this interesting podcast. So, yeah, my name is Amir Peibara. I am an assistant professor of computer systems at KTH and also a senior researcher at RISE, Research Institute of Sweden. And yeah, so my research topic uh, includes quite different areas. So, but I'm a system researcher person, mainly focused on systems, Mm -hmm. but at the moment, I'm supervising a number of students that are working on totally different topics from reinforcement learning for game playing to NLP and explainability to parallelization uh, of the deep learning, either data parallel, model parallel, and also making a kind of data-centric AI center at RISE. So it's actually, at the moment, I'm working on the totally different topics. But if I want to call myself, I'm a system researcher. Mm-hmm. And when you define researcher. system, what is a system? Yeah, so my main interest actually, if I want to go back into history, so I started by, as soon as I finished my uh, bachelor, I started working on hacking Linux kernel. Mm-hmm. So, and I found my interest in that level. So working on the very fundamental and from very baseline things. So and when you say hacking, what do you mean specifically? Did you actually change the kernel itself? Or yeah, yeah, exactly. Try to hack into systems. Hack into the system. For example, at that time, so it was around 2001, so like 20 years ago. So I we were trying to implement kind of uh, distributed firewall. Mm-hmm. And then we had to modify the I, uh, the, the, stack, the network stack in the kernel. So then mm-hmm. we modify. And what do you mean a distributed firewall? How does that work? So actually, it was mainly the idea was the distributed uh, firewall. So it, it it was mainly we wanted to have actually different machines with different uh, let's say kernels, yeah. and they collaborate together yeah. to be able to filter out the packets or coming. Yeah in and out. So, but it was a very naive approach and it was a very... Uh, but, but you mean that the, the actual firewall software communicated between each other in I- that way, tried to understand what was the... The know? idea was something like this, uh-huh. but 
in reality, we never <laughs> made it. It was just some rough idea that we, we were interested to do that. So mm-hmm. we didn't have enough funding to do this. We were interested to build it. But some practical thing that I did, so since I did my bachelor in the computer architecture mm-hmm. and hardware engineering, so I was building a number of devices and making device driver in Linux and making some embedded Linux to support those devices. Right. For example, some I.O. carded, or, and we made uh, some uh, router. Uh, so some, we were in a group. So some people built the device, and we built uh, the device drivers to support that device to be able to, uh, yeah, um, route the packets. But so this, uh, this field of you know firewalls and cybersecurity in general is actually one of my passions as oh, well. Really? So it's, it's fun that. to speak about. And if you think about today, we, we see so many hacks going on and ransomware being sent to companies and whatnot. And what do you think about the field of cybersecurity? Would the idea of a distributed firewall potentially work better today? You think to to you know help companies become more secure? So uh, we should distinguish between security or privacy. Which one you oh, make? Okay. Oh, I, I think one. ransomware kind of security. Security, security. but it's a good one. You make yeah. the distinction. It's not the same. Mm, they're not the same. Yeah, exactly. So now, actually, we are working on the on the project to make a reliable or robust uh, deep learning or distributed learning. So meaning that so just uh, assume a federated learning. So mm-hmm. we have a number of devices that each device has a uh, identical copy of the model, yeah. regardless of the base. So we have a number of models that are communicating together. So iteratively, they get data, they train, they need to aggregate uh, the gradients to be able to go to the next round. Mm-hmm. But what if any of these workers or nodes are Byzantine? Or what are Byzantine or attacker? So they are the attacker or it's attacker. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So and, then, the and assume if that note, instead of sending a correct gradient, mm-hmm. send some right. any data. Yeah. And then how can you make your models robust? Against uh, that kind Again. of yes, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then there are a number of papers considering uh, uh, using a centralized way of the aggregation, for example. One way to aggregate data in the data poly is to have a parameter server that collects all the gradients, apply the aggregation function, and send it back, and then update the web. But what if we have the we are working fully distributed systems or sorry distributed environment? Okay. So if there is no parameter server, mm. so then how like swarm learning kind of something where you exactly. it's only peer to peer, only peer to peer exactly how those uh, nodes can communicate yeah. and find the aggregation of the gradients by kicking out the, uh, let's say, the Byzantine nodes or attackers. So uh, let me be stupid here a little bit. Are we talking about different uh, challenges or different approaches in this realm of uh, federated machine learning? Is the, So federated machine learning, is could that be the umbrella? Then we go into different problem scenarios in this, or has it, is it not that it's I prefer not to use the term uh, federated learning. I prefer to use some more generic type, uh, term, which is called data parallel. So in the data parallel, it means that you have a number of nodes or workers, mm-hmm. 
and they have their own models, mm-hmm. but each model has its own data. Mm. In the federated learning, so it could be any device, it could be mobile devices, IoT, and so on, but it is not limited to that uh, scenario. So, so, you, so you could have it in a cluster of the machines. Okay, so FedML is more of a concrete scenario, and you are talking broader that Bro- where FedML is one scenario. Yeah, that could be under umbrella of uh, data parallel approach. Okay. The data parallel approach sits above. Yeah. So that's a, a more, more of an umbrella term. Exactly. Federal learning is based on that approach. And how would you take the term like decentralized models versus uh, data parallel? Some people call like decentralized like an umbrella term of federated learning. Would you say it's similar to data parallel or is so, it different? Or Yeah, exactly. So when we want to distinguish between centralized and decentralized, we can refer to where we aggregate data or gradients. Mm-hmm. So the aggregation can be, uh, ag- the gradient can be aggregated centralized in the parameter server or in a fully distributed map, for example, using ring all reduce. Yeah, exactly. But in regardless of where we aggregate the gradients, the model is or in the, the approach is data parallel. And data parallel means that each worker has a copy of the model, but they have different parts of the data. Because so, al- yeah. another approach is uh, model parallel, meaning that we have a model, but we partition into different parts and each device has part of the model. So one approach, you send the model around, and the other approach, you send the data around. Exactly. And uh, taking once again one step back, why do we care about this? What's the problem that we are solving or what's the future that we are anticipating why this is important? Which one? The security <laughs> or the paralyzation? Par- or distribu- par- let's talk about, uh, we, end, we ended up in parallelization and distribution. Yeah. Which so, is, I, I, I think, par- park it, by the way, because I want to explore architecture uh-huh. Because I think the whole world becomes data and AI ecosystems yeah. connecting to different distribu- you know, industry ecosystems, connecting companies inside a company or between companies. Mm-hmm. So I think the world is distributed whether we like it or not. But this is almost like a sec- separate topic that we can... So how would you describe that topic if we were to, to table it for now? Uh, I, I, would, I would, you know, what's the future AI ecosystem? How, you know, how should we think about our architectural or design patterns mm-hmm. to be data AI ready? If, in, in, in my hypothesis, I think industries turns into ecosystems. I, I see manufacturing in, of trucks in Scania moving towards the transport ecosystem. And I think it's going to be underpinned by data and AI ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have different actors and players that where data needs to flow. Yeah. So this is the, this is the theme that I would like to go from strategic to yeah. hardcore, what it means. Okay. Like we almost jumped there now, but but <laughs> I think it's a topic in itself. Yeah. yeah. It, regarding your question, why it is important yes. regarding parallelization is important. So I can say that we are living in the big data era. So yeah. and I can define big data in a very simple term. That's an interesting why. Okay. <laughs> yeah. and, a, and a big um, yeah. Okay. So yeah. How would you define big data? I defined big data according to the funny uh, tweet yes. okay. that's mentioned that uh, if you load data into the memory of your computer and if your computer crashes, 
then your data is big. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not big. <laughs> really, that's so. It means that you cannot use a single machine yeah. to process data. If you cannot use a single machine to process data, then you need to split it into different parts and then process it differently. Process in uh, parallel using parallel. different machine, right? So, uh, do you think it's only a matter of the volume of the data, or could it also be that the computational needs are too? It could be. Grave for yeah, exactly. A single machine. Yeah. So, for example, as you know, we have different ways. So we have yes. volume. We oh, have. Veracity. I was <laughs> waiting for that. And, 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 and the veracity is not a real entity or something. Like that. Yeah, but these are the, the the buzzwords. I prefer to use. If your computer crashes, then your data like is it. big. So, for people that don't understand, we we have the you know traditional three Vs, and then yes. I think it comes five yeah, or even more. Or yeah, like so like who, Vs who, who came up know. with this? This was 2012 when someone said, "Oh, we need big data, right?" Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it became is is a hype story right yes. how you how you this is how you sell conferences uh, <laughs> so you said we were selling big data conferences <laughs> and then but it was the four at this time it was four no. it's three turned four is oh, yeah. it five now I guess. but it's actually it's very funny so anytime that you come up or end up with uh, this kind of terms yes. in the community so people try to use it without even understanding. Yes. There is a nice yes. quote that says that. Parroting, parroting. <laughs> yeah, this says. I've done it too. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it says that big data is like a teenager sex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All are talking about it. Nobody knows how to do it. And they think other people do it. So let's say. This is another t-shirt. <laughs> big data is like teenager sex. <laughs> <laughs> so they say that, okay, we are doing this. But actually nobody knows how to do it. Yeah. And big data, when it appears, it was like this. But Everybody talks about it. No one's done it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Okay, anyway. So due to the big data that causes our machines to be crashed, we need a new way or new approach to be able to process data. And of course, when we have neural network, we still have data and big models. So, so we have two big things. Big data, large volume of data, and big models, we, meaning that we have lots of the parameters or weights in the model. Yeah. So if we have only big or large volume of data, we can use a data problem, meaning that we can split the data into different parts and load parts of the data on each worker or node. But if you have a large number of the uh, weights or parameters, then we can use model parallelization. So meaning that we partition the model and then we put part of the model on different nodes. Yeah. And that's also one of the topics and uh, one of my students are working on how to put different parts of the models on different device. That is called device placement strategy. That's also very challenging. Yeah. So we are, so, but I think this is a really good distinction when we talk about why we need to do parallel. It's a data problem, but it's also the, if you want to parallelize the model itself. Yes, or yeah. sometimes we need to have a combination, of course. Yeah, and and uh, the computational complexity, I would yeah. say. But yeah, yeah, sure. So if we're going to do a Swedish GPT three, we will certainly need some kind of model parallel approach. Yes, exactly. Right, let's hope we don't go there. But, but how how did you end up at uh, at KTH, or was that the what's what's is that where you started? Or probably not. Yeah, so I don't know your background. I came to KTH in two thousand eight, actually. Mm. So 
I did my bachelor and master in Iran. Mm -hmm. In I started my bachelor in 1996, mm -hmm. and I was, uh, as I mentioned, so I did my bachelor and master in computer architecture and hardware engineering. And then at that time, I realized that oh, I'm interested in distributed systems and distributed computing and so on. So then I applied for another master in uh, distributed systems at KTH in 2006. And then I started uh, my master, uh, the second master in district systems at KTH. And then I continue my PhD as an industrial PhD at six. It was not rise at that no, moment. It was, it was six. six, yes. And then after... Yeah, this is when you... Yeah, because we had friends here from six that you, of course, yes. know Lale and... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And then I was there. I did my uh, PhD at six and then... After that, I did a postdoc at KTH, and then I went to Oxford mm. for one and a half year. I did another postdoc, and then I applied for a faculty position at KTH. And did you get invited, or was it something that, how did you end up in Oxford? So I just went for a postdoc position, so I applied mm. for the there was, you, there was an opening coming up, and yes, you applied exactly, for it. exactly. Perfect. And what was the topic for in Oxford for the postdoc? So it was more... An applied uh, AI. Mm. It was totally different. So before that, I was uh, mainly a, a system researcher and make, working on the peer-to-peer -peer computing and also data-intensive computing platforms. But I've never worked on the applied AI. So I found mm. it quite interesting. So then I joined it. And so it was on the epidemiology. So we apply oh. machine learning, deep learning techniques for... Epidemiology. Epidemiology. That's a hard word. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a very important one in these days. Yeah, yes, I, exactly. Wow, it's almost like uh, spot on for... And so, that's uh, a, one uh, of the places that you can see the impact of the... Actually, the real impact of the AI. Because, for example, uh, it could imp improve some of the... Actually, uh, process that doctors do manually... And then you can improve them by taking advantage of ML and DL. But, but can you just elaborate a bit more? What was the topic of epidemiology in uh, Oxford that you worked with? So actually, honestly, I'm not <laughs> very good in the epidemiology. I, I, I know that was a department, a division of epidemiology. But I was working on the project by applying machine learning, deep learning on the big uh, healthcare data set, mm. trying to extract some patterns and also. Right. Uh, so, looking from a more macro point of view, how, was it the spread of different diseases or what was the patterns you were trying to find? So, one of the main projects that we worked uh, at the Oxford was to make a unified representations for different and data sets because, you know, so we have different data sets with different patterns, and then, so we would like to, for example, extract some pattern from them. Mm -hmm. The question is that, how can we make a unified representations to be able to apply other algorithms? Then, for example, then we compare different models. For example, we use some simple CNN model, or we use restrictables on machine, and different other techniques to make a unified representations. And then that rep representation could be an input 
to honor other algorithms. So it's like different encoders for different data sets? Exactly. And then you can use some generic models so for all of them. Generic so. uh, representations for the da- different data sets. So yes. if I'm yeah. not really following it, like we, we have um, heterogeneous data sets that we want to unify in certain ways exactly. in order to have them, co- to compare them even if they were, as long as they're heterogeneous, we can't really compare them. But if I can unify them, now we can do algorithms on the whole exactly. population. Exactly. Assume you, have a mo- assume you have a model you would like to apply in different mm-hmm. data set, but each data set has its own schema. Yeah. And as long as th- this is it, you can't really take any insight from it. But exactly. if you now unify it, you can have insight across. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But actually, it was a. Uh, I was there only for one and a half year, so I didn't. Uh, Complete. Uh, complete and go into the deep because I was in the middle of the uh, period that I received the offer and was it was a bit sad that I had to live in the middle of the project. But so anyway, so and this is back to uh, I came back uh, to, to KTS. Yes, and this was what year approximately? Uh, July two thousand eighteen. Eighteen. Oh yeah. So then you came back to KTH as as, as, a, as an as an assistant professor in right. computer science. Well, uh, I'm glad that you came back to Sweden. Yeah, at least. Thanks. So that's awesome. And I, I, I asked you before the podcast, uh, but but how is uh, the different branches around uh, computer systems or AI? Yeah. How does it work? How is it organized? Um, the di- divisions or departments? Yeah. Uh, KTH has a, a number of schools, and each school focuses on a specific domain. We are part of the EECS uh, School, Electronic Engineering and Computer Science. It has a number of the uh, departments under EECS. Computer Science is one of the uh, departments. And under Computer Science Department, we have five divisions. And Software and Computer Systems is one of the divisions. And I'm part of that. And, and, and what is the sort of one, one-liner, what this department mission is or focus is that you're working in? The department is, I think, it's mainly is a kind of logical term. It's not a physical thing, but no. divisions are physical things. Mm-hmm. It's like umbrella to cover some management. Yeah, but so, but if you frame the management of of the department you're in, what's the what's or division? Or division. Oh, division. Yeah, yes. correct, correct. Division. So division is uh, software and computer systems. So the topics that we cover in that divisions are distributed systems. Uh, networking, both in the low level and high level, high level, I mean in the graph level, mm-hmm. and software engineering, and also DevOps. So these are the different topics that we are working but I'm mainly working on the distributed systems group, but it is called distributed systems group, but now as I mentioned, so I have a students on reinforcement learning, yeah. NLP, explainability, and also the systems. Okay, but this is, uh, you paint the picture, so I, I, I follow. Yeah, good. And you also give some courses, right? Yes. In, um, yeah, what kind of courses do you give? So I'm giving three main courses at KTH. Two of them are master levels, but PhD students also can also take them. One of them is called Data Intensive Computing Course, and the second one is called Scalable Machine Learning and Deep Learning. And I have a third course, which is a PhD-level course, called, it's called Systems for Scalable Machine Learning. So I designed the Data Intensive Computing course and Systems for Scalable Machine Learning uh, from scratch. 
Uh, so the, we didn't have these courses at KT. So I just designed them and then and registered them as a course. Because, you know, after I finished my PhD, so during my PhD, I was working on a peer-to-peer system, a peer-to-peer algorithm. I had no idea about data-intensive computing platforms. And it was 2013. At that moment, I heard a lot of buzzwords such as mm-hmm. HTFS, Spark. It was the beginning of the Spark. It was, there was not Fling. It was Stratosphere and some other terms. So I was not, I didn't know what was this term. So I said, okay, let's design a course to understand what is this. <laughs> design the course to learn I yourself. designed the course to learn okay. it and say, okay. This is smart. I, I, and I, then, I want to learn this, so I, I, will, I will design the course. Yeah. Then, I, then I know what it is. <laughs> and then I figured, okay, so now I understand what, what are these topics. So why not to present and give it as a course to other people? And then present it first at six, and I received very good feedback from the people at six. And then in 2016, I didn't have any position at KTH at that moment. But as a guest lecturer, gave a complete course and received extremely good feedback. And then at that time, I registered officially as a KTH course. And then uh, I continued so far. And every year I receive, I have around 120 students, both from KTH and some people are also coming from industry during if. Many people from Ericsson or any other companies are interested. But but but, but this topic here is, uh, I think, it's quite profound and something that I have realized that I've been starting to talk about more w- without having the, the 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 expert knowledge. So so here I want to try something out with you, and and I want to hear a real expert uh, telling me off or telling me yes. And and what I've been trying, what I realized when when I've been working both you know, in, in different large enterprises is that um, I think we are entering into a completely new coding paradigm in many mm-hmm. ways, right? But one of the easiest way to explain it is that 99% of the systems or applications we are building on is actually very, very little data that is created and mastered and sourced in the new system. Mm-hmm. So 80% of all the data, which w- what the purpose of the workflow is, is coming from other systems. Mm-hmm. And, and then, so this is not so, for, for me, it, it, this is more much more basic, but I think it's a problem uh, because I meet a, co- a constant conversation around architectural, where I see anti-pattern or clashes between application-centric thinking and data-centric thinking. Mm-hmm. And the way I define this, or ex- when we talk about this, inside the company where I'm right now, it's a little bit like people want to build the whole stack, uh, you yeah. know, and they are, they are thinking like, yeah, I, have, I have a user to have an operating system and I build it all like this. And, I, and, and a concrete example now is we're working on a project around lead generation. So generating leads to sell, right? Uh-huh. But the, prob- the, the reality is that when you build a lead generation system and want to identify leads and recommend leads, it's based on data that comes from many different source systems. Yes. And the actual this application or system sits somewhere in the middle, like a, like a, like a backend. It's a recommender system in a way, mm-hmm. and then it should go to in front of some salesperson who should use it. Mm-hmm. But still, I end up people 
discussing how what is the system? Can we buy this as a software and can we buy this as a full stack? And I'm like, no, no, no. This is something else. This is a data product. This is this is a different way of coding and thinking when you code, when you're not really there. Like the data already exists. You're gonna channel data. You're gonna fuel data. You know, data pipe. All this, right? Yep. But people then have a application centric mindset, and all of a sudden we are building things in silos and silos. Uh, is this the same stuff? But I'm, 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 or I mean, like, do you see do, do, when I say data centric in this way? Do you agree with that, or is it completely <laughs> off? Because I'm not the technical guy, and I'm not the trained guy here. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I see a problem. Yeah, I see. So yes and no. Actually, what I meant by data intensive computing platforms, I'm purely talking about the platforms, not talking. I'm not talking about the full stack. Mm-hmm. So. But I can categorize these platforms into very two big, uh, let's say, categories. The platforms that we can use to store data, platforms that we can use to process data. Whatever you define could be built on top of that. Yeah. So storage. Think, you know, potentially, I think this is a separate topic in itself. And, um, and I think you know, we should end off with the courses yes. and everything and then perhaps move more into the data centric versus application centric and how yeah. we build yeah, applications exactly. and systems of systems. Yeah, it's I great. I, I, but I, I, think, I did the rabbit know, hole. I yeah, did the rabbit hole. I think we're sparing <laughs> off a bit in discussions here. <laughs> so before we move into that, but I added it to the list so we can come back to that later. Sure. But okay, so you give a number of courses like data in- intensive computing, computing and scalable ML and systems for scalable ML. And if we just start with the first course, like data in- intensive yeah. computing, if that's it. Uh, what type of technologies more specifically are you teaching these days yeah. uh, in that course? So, yeah, as I mentioned, so, so in the beginning, I realized we have lots of platforms we need some, um, let's say, schema or framework to give a big picture to me to understand what I should put in each of these platforms. Mm. So then I define kind of, uh, let's say, a stack. It's mm. not the, the the same stack as you mentioned, but I define a stack and they say, okay, this stack has a number of layers. Yes. And each layer I define a number of the platforms that can be put in that layer. So one layer is a storage layer yeah. that we can use to store data. And then that layer can cover different type of the platform. One is distributed file system that we can store raw data, NoSQL databases that we can use data, but with more, let's say, uh, schema, or we can apply some queries on them, and then storage for streaming data. We can call them as a messaging system, such as Kafka and mm-hmm. any other system. So these are the platforms that I can use in the layer for storage. On top of that, we have some and we have a layer that covers the platforms that we can use to process data. The compute part. Yes, exactly. And again, and that layer has a number of components. The platforms that we can use to process batch data, the p- component that that can be used to process streaming data, mm. graph data, uh, structured data, and applying higher level to analyze ML or apply ML and DL. And on the bottom of this stack, I put the frameworks or platforms that we can use to manage resources such as Mesos and Yarn and so on. But the main, uh, let's say, technology that I build the course based on is Spark. Yeah. 
And I think a lot of people say it's uh, one of the leading, at least open source solutions for big data processing. Would you agree with that today? Spark. You, Spark? Yeah. 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 Uh, I Spark. think Spark is, uh, is kind of leading. Yes. Of course, we have, we are working on similar projects with maybe even stronger approaches in some parts, uh, mm. such as Flink, yes. that we build part of it at KTH and Rise. Mm. Still, believe Spark is ahead of so Spark and Flink, it's kind of a, a war between the two, I would yes. say. So we, we, we've talked <laughs> before about, um, we had some Julia uh, advocates versus Python uh -huh. advocates. So now, like, can we contrast Flink and Spark and what, what, what think, type of language yeah, is Spark? Flink is the Julia and yeah. Spark <laughs> is the Python, I would say. Uh, yeah, I'm not I, sure if you agree. But. I understand exactly what you mean. Everybody <laughs> uses Spark. The open yes. libraries are in Spark, yada, yes. yada, yada. Yeah. Yeah. So actually... And what does Spark do? I mean, like Python does something. What does Spark do hardcore yep. as a lingo? So the main idea of the, the Spark was the following. So in the very beginning, we have we had MapReduce. Yes. So the MapReduce work is the following. So we have data source. For example, we have HDFS. Then we read data. We apply a map function. Then we create some intermediate key value result, give it to the reuse function, it applies the reduce function, and then we store into the HDFS. That's it. It's work, it works fine, but if you, but the whole data flow has only these two components, map and reduce. But if you want to make a more complex data flow, how can you do that? So then we have uh, Java, uh, Flume Java <laughs> that provides you some APIs to build such a complex uh, pipeline or let's say data flow, but it is translated to a sequence of uh, MapReduce tasks. So between each um, MapReduce task, you, the reducer should write the result into the HDFS and the next mapper should read it from the HDFS. It works, but it's very slow. So the idea of the Spark was the following. Let's use that one. Let's define some APIs to be able to define that data flow easily but get rid of these intermediate uh, HDFS and keep all the data in the memory. But then there is a question. So in, in that uh, HDFS approach, so it was clear if there is some failure happens, so then I can go to the previous HDFS and read the data from that and continue the rest of the project. But in Spark, the data is in the memory. If not, some, not only, yeah, I mean, it can yeah, yeah, but, go to disk. Uh, yeah, yeah, but the performance comes from yeah, by sure. storing data in the memory. So. Yeah. The question was that if some failure happens, how can we recover the data? So they said, okay, while we are defining the data flow, we are just creating a lineage graph. And lineage graph means that uh, we put set of the operations and then the data that, that was based on the structure called RDD at that point, but now is, RDD is not being used in reality, mainly data frame and data That's sets are going to be used. But anyway, so RDDs are passing from operation to another operation. While we are creating data flow, we just create that DAG and direct basically graph. And then, so if some failure happens, I can go back through this DAG until I come up with some nodes that has the final and correct version of the RDD and I can uh, 
read with the operation from that moment only on. the on the last bit on. and since that data is in the memory repeating the process is very fast that's actually the winning point of the Uh, sorry for going a bit more technical here. Now, yes. This is actually, you know, I, I love this topic as well, but this is going to be even more technical. So, you know, Spark is speeding up an execution graph, right? Yes. Or different tasks to do, and they can be map task and reduce task and whatnot. And then we have potentially TensorFlow in the middle of that. Yeah. <laughs> It also builds up an execution graph or yeah, a graph of, of the operations going to do uh, with different, you know, TensorFlow operations that they have. And how do you debug a system that is using both these kind of lazy execution graphs in Spark land and also in TensorFlow land? Yeah. So actually, both uh, Spark and let's say TensorFlow, the idea behind them are totally different. The mm. idea of the Spark to be able to <clears throat> apply batch processing at the scale, but mm. TensorFlow is to facilitate making neural networks. So yes. usually the existing system that use both TensorFlow and let's say uh, Spark, they built TensorFlow on top of Spark. It's not merged. So no. actually it, it's, it's being run on top of that. For example, a platform that we built um, at Logical Clocks mm. and KTH is called Maggie for hyperparameter tuning. Yeah. So assume you want to uh, train a model but with different hyperparameters. One approach is to make a, a Spark cluster and then, so prioritization is be managed by Spark, but each worker runs one TensorFlow. One TensorFlow. Yeah. And then they are being run in parallel. I think we're going a bit too deep here, but I think I add this topic, I think, to, to later because I think this is a very interesting topic uh, when it comes to how do you make an efficient development environment in general where you can debug and troubleshoot and understand, you know, the horrible stack traces that do occur in Sparkland and even worse in TensorFlow land. And when you combine the two, it's like, oh. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But okay, this is a very yeah, interesting topic. But let's get, come back to that potentially yes, if sure. we have time. Sure, okay, sure. so you have a data intensive course. Yeah. And then you also have uh, the uh, scalable ML course and yeah. a something called systems for scalable systems ML. Systems for scalable. So what's the difference between the two? Okay, so a scalable machine learning deep learning course is a course for a master's students. So And the topics that I cover in the in that course it has two parts. I cover uh, machine learning and deep learning, and then for the machine learning, I cover first of all I cover the uh, the the concepts of the machine learning, for example, supervised and so on, mm -hmm. classification uh, and recursion, and and other types of the algorithms in ML, and then I, as a system perspective, I cover Spark ML and present how to build all these applications using a Spark ML. That's one part of the course. The second part of the course is uh, deep learning. So again, I cover different concepts in deep learning and then present how to implement them using TensorFlow and Keras. Mm -hmm. That's and scalable machine learning, deep learning course. But the third course, which is called Systems for Machine Learning and Deep Learning, I designed for a PhD student, that's mainly a research-based um, uh, okay. uh, course. So and in that course, I cover 
the fundamental challenges that we need to cover, uh, actually solve for uh, mm-hmm. system for machine learning, such as parallelizations, either data parallel and model parallel, model parallel, uh, robust learning, auto. Uh, Say robots learning. Robust, robust, robust learning. Robust Sorry. learning. Yeah. Okay. Uh, auto ML. Yeah. And uh, yeah, these are the main topics that I we cover in that course, and then we go into the deep in any of these uh, concepts, and then discuss with the students. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm very eager to go eat in, in more into depth into like AutoML and robust learning as well, but but perhaps later. And uh, yeah. and then okay, so you have a number of courses, and you also do a number of you have a research group as well, or yes. And can you Ofi- just officially? I cannot. but you have. You are working with a team around yes. those key areas that you have exactly. highlighted before. Exactly, I have seven students, and one postdoc, and of course a number of master students. I called our group, which is not officially <laughs> registered as a scales. What a scales. 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 Yes. Oh, okay. Scalable. Uh, uh, Learning. Okay. Uh-huh. And do you have any, what's the latest or greatest publications you and your team or, or your, you've been working on that you just recently published or that you're planning to publish uh-huh. in the near future? Uh, so actually from last December, it was actually a very good time. So we published more than 10 papers. So wow. So that's, 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 that's productive. That's very productive time. So. If I want to, you know, which one is you, are you? Then, like, like, pick one, pick one. So I can. Yeah. So there was a one paper that is not part of the any of these active research topic that I'm working on, but that's a paper that uh, we published uh, with one of the master students in the conference called ISPA ISPA, mm. and we got the best paper award for that paper. Mm. And uh, now it's part of the production at the Spotify. In, it is in, in API. So that's actually... So something that was rewarded that then is, has the, made it to production. Exactly. And it's only based on the one master thesis. So it's, it's very perfect. It's, it's like a master thesis can also be good. Yes, exactly. It's only six months work with the one master thesis. It's only two of us. And then, yeah. So how proud were you of your master student? This yeah, is amazing stuff. That's amazing. So yeah. And it's about uh, joining... Uh, massive uh, data, but repeated joins. But by repeated joins, meaning it means that. Uh, so, assume you have two uh, data sets, you would like to join them, but for any reason, you cannot materialize the result of the join. And anytime you have to, let's say, join them, do it again. Do it again. Repeat it. So, how we can do it in an efficient way? That's all. That was the, uh, actually uh, the idea of that paper. Can you go a bit more into technical depth there, or is there anything secret about you know the solution? Or um, can can you give, for example, just give some concrete example of what they did in Spotify to to make use of this result? Or were they trying to join playlists? Or? Yeah, I can give some example. Assume you have a data set of the users and data set of the, let's say, profiles, mm. okay? But 
for any reason you don't want to keep the user IDs with them, let's say for example profiles or play, playlists or whatever. Mm -hmm. So each of them is associated with the keys. So for any operations that you want to do, you need Always to join. Yeah, you need to join them. But as I mentioned, so for in, for the privacy reasons, you, you cannot keep the together to get them together exactly. And then you need to repeat it again. Repeat so then, so then every time you have a question, the join needs to be done exactly. And in this, real time, join this, in real time. Uh, it is not. It is in a batch, but it's rep it's repeated. being repeated in a restaurant. And these two data sets are huge. Mm. And what was the solution then? How, how do you? And without storing the combination of IDs, still make it efficient from uh -huh. a repeatable point of view. Uh, I need to remember. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we can skip this question because I don't remember at the moment. Usually so, but, but when, the, when someone says that, it means they don't want to <laughs> divulge the information. But okay, but, let's but, skip that. But the paper, the paper is available and yes. the source code is okay. also available. <laughs> Cool. But let's not make it too easy, right? If someone <laughs> wants to steal a good idea, they need to work a little uh, bit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so since actually I'm working probably in different topics, I don't have it really in my mind. So what yeah. we did is uh, cool. Amon is amazing stuff. Great, uh, Amir. I think we covered most of um, your background now and what you're working with in terms of different research areas. And you also have some PhD students that you supervise, right? Yeah. You mentioned some PhD students, perhaps. Uh, so I have seven PhD students. Uh, one of them is a joint work with you yeah. that we are working on the explainability and uh, NLP. We have a, another uh, student together with King, mm -hmm. and we are working on reinforcement learning for game playing. And the main focus is how to make it generalized solutions for agents to play different games. For example, you may train a, an agent that plays very well on one level, but how can you generalize it to play well in different levels? And how to make it scalable considering you have lots of data that you need to, to be used to train the agent. And for people who don't know King, King is the company that produced the Candy Crush. Yes, exactly. And, and I, need to, I, need to, I need to do a little bit, uh, I need to double check. So working in the King's research uh, team uh, with Sahar? Yes, exactly. So uh, that's a joint work with uh, Sahar. Yeah. Uh, she, she was, was on the podcast. Yeah, she yes, was exactly. on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah. So this, it's a small little world. It's yeah. a small world, exactly. Uh, so yeah, we applied so for. So we say uh, hello to Sahar. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so we applied for a uh, was proposal together last year, and based on that, we started this joint project. It's called Scalable Generalized Reinforcement Learning for Game Playing. And then we have I have uh, co-supervisor of two students who are working on a project called Extreme Airs, and in that project, so the project is to to use machine learning for processing uh, Earth uh, observation data, but our focus is mainly on the parallelization. So one of them is working on data parallel, the other one is working on the model parallel. Uh, I also co-supervise two new PhD students who are part of the new uh, Horizon 2020. I think it's the last proposal based on the last call in yeah. Horizon 2020. <laughs> So it's called data cloud. And again, here in this... Sorry, data cloud? Data or? cloud, yes. Okay. 
uh, it is our task in this project that's again a European project with more than 10 partners so our uh, role in this project is to make a kind of high level language or DSL uh, domain specific language to be able to present a data flow for different people with not expert in AI so mm-hmm. it's more about making a DSL that's a topic I just started, so I didn't list it in my uh, research activities. It's quite new. And I have a student uh, who is going to finish soon. He's working on cloud orchestrations and auto-scaling. So we are, we are using kind of machine learning approach for resource uh, allocations. Re- resource allocation optimization. Yes, exactly. And uh, in the latest uh, paper that we published in CCGrid this year, and we use uh, imitation learning mm. to be able to auto scale the resources in the cloud environment. Yeah. That's pretty sexy stuff. <laughs> pretty cool stuff. So, w- yeah. w- if the research come up with some nice results for the data cloud projects, yes. what could it be potentially used for, you would say? So, it would be very useful for non AI expert or non computer science expert people. Mm. So and actually that's my goal in the research at the moment. So I try to facilitate it and make it easy for people to use it because now machine learning, deep learning provides a lot of capability for people, but it is biased toward who knows these concepts. Many people cannot. Similar to a vision of a company I know. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. But it's, it's this whole idea of scarcity to abundance, uh, you know that. We have something, we have, we have abundance of data, but scarcity of value out of it. And in order to get abundance out of value and abundance out of AI, typically it has some sort of storyline of simplification or make or use user friendliness. Exactly. The whole example with internet, starting with the DARPA net and all that, and then the browser changes everything, right? Exactly. And I think that's, that's the general logic that has to happen. How do we go from scarcity to abundance around AI? Exactly. You need to then and that's take a, this direction. Exactly. And that's my kind of uh, research topic that at RISE. Mm. So because RISE, uh, the focus on my RISE is none of the, the topics that I mentioned now. So at RISE, we are focusing on building an AI center. And we want to build that AI center for, again, non-AI expert people. So at the moment, I'm working with two master students uh, on two projects. And the idea of these two projects is the following. First, uh, um, and the first topic is to uh, make, a, let's say, uh, solutions for people who can write their questions or query or demands in text, and then the system can Try. can give them some relevant code that they can use. Doesn't convert it to the code, but we assume that we have a big repository of the code. We have a big repository of the data, which are not annotated. Okay. Now you write your code and your question, such as you do in the Stack Overflow, and then you like to rank, for example, filter the available source code and then propose uh, to the user. Or another topic that another student is working on is clustering the code based on their functionality. Assume again, you have uh, 
large amount of the source code. They're working different tasks. So again, we are using some kind of NLP approach to uh, simplify to simplify and cluster the code. For example, I'm saying that I'm looking for code with that functionality. So one of the basic components in that center should be uh, module to cluster the codes. Mm. Yeah. So for the first part of trying to use a big repository of different code bases and then answering natural language questions to it, w- would it be fair to say it's like a question answering system, but with the query being natural language and then the answer being code? Exactly. So it could be like, I, I write a, a simple like query saying, I want to do a binary search functionality in Python. Something like this. And then it actually suggests the piece of code directly saying this is exactly. the way to do it. Yeah, it can, for example, returns 10 codes and these 10 codes with a high probability. So a retrieval kind yes. of. Yes, exactly. exactly. Yes. Actually, what we wrote is based <laughs> yes. on that idea. Yeah. Uh, awesome. And Angel is working on it. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's an awesome student. Yeah. Cool. No. But now I think we should, we should formally start a topic. Yes. And we need, we have so many, I have so Oof. many great topics. Yes. yes. Um, do you so, want to take one first or should I choose one? I mean, like, I think to talk about data centric versus application centric mm. yes, is, is a good entry point. Yeah. And then I would like to have a real deep conversation on what, I, what we think about the future of the monolithic versus distributed systems. Because I think the world is distributed, but I don't think that shows up yet enough mm-hmm. in how we think in, in general enterprise. So those are two main, uh, very interesting themes, yep. I think. Yeah. Okay. But do you, maybe it's good to start with application centric as mm-hmm. data centric because it's a logical. Try to frame a good question for. Okay. Yeah. So in 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 my op- opinion, we are coming f- from different from like a a journey of coding, yeah. software development, and a, an outlook on the world. Uh, in the nineties, we built applications, and we 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 learned how to do an application stack, uh, you know, from from the lowest level uh, yeah. operating layer, and then to the logic, to the GUI for one application. And then right now we are living in the world where these two uh, universes, I think still clash. Mm-hmm. They have not converged yet. So I can go and talk to, even like it clashes even inside companies. So I can go to Microsoft and Microsoft can say, we have the platform for you. What's the platform? It's Dynamics. And now we talk about Microsoft Dynamics, CRM, finance systems, application-centric thinking, and they are starting to grow fatter and fatter monolithic applications. And here I come now and I can go to the cloud stack of Azure, which is more about, you know, fundamentally, uh, you know, layering, decoupling, uh, storage, compute, logic, and basically giving me the toolbox to think differently. And and the, and what I see now in the big enterprises is that based on where your legacy is, so I've been working with the Dynamics team since I grew up, and I've been working in the big data space. We are we are basically not really understanding the world of design and architecture the same way. We mm-hmm. say platform, yeah. So for me, could we have a definition and dif- differentiation? What is application centric and what is data centric way of developing and coding? And, and what is then platform in all of this? So something like distinguishing a bit too and what we think about that. And, mm-hmm. and then, so that's sort of the, 
the floor is yours to yeah. take this in any direction. Yes. But this is sort of the this is the problem I'm I'm, I'm facing that we, you are not talking this, you are not saying talking about the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but apart from the application versus uh, data driven uh, approaches, so. So if we consider the monotonic and uh, distributed approach, so it's a very long and old uh, clash between these two approaches. So I remember, for example, when I was reading the operating system course, so I remember there is a clash between Tannenbaum and Linux Torvald. Uh, uh, what's the guy behind Linux? Uh, Torvald. Torvald. Torvald, yeah. Linux Torvald. So, so that was the conflict between uh, monotonic and uh, Modular ones, so for yeah. example, Tannenbaum had a very nice operating system called Minix. It was modular, and then it was lightweight, and it could work properly. But due to that nature, so we may lose some performance because of that modularity. But Torvald proposed, okay, let's make a more monotonic approach, and then have, let's say, Linux kernel and Linux operating system, you know, Linux, and then. And build them. So actually, it's a very long history between these two. So I myself, I'm more more uh, modular person, and I prefer that approach because it gives you more freedom to to invent new thing and then uh, actually communicate with different uh, techniques and approaches. Although if you have a more monotonic. Uh, approach so you achieve a very good performance because everything is built in one system and then you get rid of a lot of overhead of the communications but uh, if you for example again look at the operating system perspective in the very beginning version of the windows even the x or user interface is part of the let's say the kernel so it's awful (laughs) but you know of course it worked fine uh, but yeah, that's a kind of uh, clash between these two approaches. But if you come to the uh, data-driven and uh, application, so uh, what was the question? <laughs> no, <laughs> is there a difference? So how do we contrast application-centric development and architecture with, with more data-centric? Is there such a thing? Is, is there a difference? And, and and my definition is a little bit like here I buy a, here is the full stack application that it, it's good for a business purpose the whole stack the problem becomes in a huge enterprise I have hundreds of these applications in, in a siloed stack and the data is not really functioning so well and now I realize I can actually build these platforms you know data on a platform where I can build different microservices and then re- join them together in in a, in a you know mm-hmm. in a my, you know in front ends in different ways so for me it's like building microservices on a on, on a platform and reaching the same result yeah. and here we have yeah. full application yeah. stacks but the problem is it's not one it's, yeah. it's thousands yeah 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 actually these days and due to the having uh, having massive amount of data that kind of data driven approach is kind of we can say that that's a, a de facto or the main approach that many platforms are built on. So because for, for me, it's very simple. When I look at the data natives or, or looking at technology driven companies that has sort of grown up from scratch, like Spotify, mm-hmm. they have a certain 
architectural culture or design, I think. But, but I'm trying to understand what you mean as well. I'm not fully sure if I understand you correctly either. I mean, for one, you can think about the monolithic kind of application structure and you can think about the microservice kind of architecture. Yeah. But on the other side, you can think more of building application with a traditional software engineering mindset versus having a more machine learning data-driven mindset. And, and I'm not sure which one you're no, referring so, to. So, so here. okay, so it's a little bit like let's take this anywhere because we talk, we hear, we throw around application centric versus data centric. Even I do that. Mm -hmm. Okay, and to some degree, I think there are many perspectives on that. So one argument could be: Do I do I as an enterprise go out and buy off the shelf vendor applications one after another, and then and and then I try to integrate a lot of different full stack applications. So it's a little bit like I don't even build my own applications. I buy off the shelf and then integrate. If I look at the big enterprise, this is how it works. We have an SAP application. We have a Dynamics. So this is one angle. And next to this, which is this exists and it still will exist, we are now starting to build uh, things uh, on the data platform. And then, and then, of course, then we can come into how do we build on the data platform? Do we build monolithic or do we build microservices? But my, my starting we, point was... Can you give some concrete example? Because I don't follow either, actually. Uh, what do you mean with data-centric in that view? Do you mean actually data-driven applications more than code-driven? Or what, can you give an example, perhaps, to just clarify what you mm. mean? Or do you follow? I, I didn't really so, follow. Oh, I need some clarification. Yes. Yes, yeah, so. sorry. Uh, this is my, my layman that shines through. I mean, like, so... So for for me, you know, okay, maybe I, maybe I'm trying to do too many things in one. <laughs> I, I need to separate it into different questions. Yeah. Okay, first first conversation is about full stack application, uh, whether you bought it or built yeah. it, and then you have many next to each other, and then try to integrate that in order to get so data. more component based versus building the whole stack yourself. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, this is one example. So how do I work, you know, application centric uh, in this way? Um, buying applications, uh, mm -hmm. so to speak. Uh, th then then I, I think the other conversation is about, um, I don't know how to frame it correctly. But give a concrete example if you can. I think that would make it much more clear for everyone. Okay, so the concrete example is this, that uh, we have a lot of d data sitting in different source systems, right? And we now need to build an application that does a, a, a certain component function. And ultimately, that, that, that function needs to be used by someone, so there needs to be some sort of GUI. Uh, I then see examples of people basically treating this like, uh, I need, I build a new software application from scratch. Like mm -hmm. I go in and do it like it, it wasn't residing on okay. a platform, but like I was inventing a new software. And then I build the whole stack for this purpose. And then ultimately, in the end, uh, I integrate data from different uh, parts, uh -huh. uh, mm -hmm. traditional way, ETL or whatever. And then I, and then I model everything in here. And then basically from here, I, I build a GUI inside the own application. And I, I now present an end-to-end -end application I built from scratch. To, uh, as an application or as a service as a service right you know okay good alternatively i realized that 
this is actually a bunch of data coming from different uh, data that needs to be transformed for different reasons. I'm not even necessarily talking about that this is becoming machine learning or AI driven. It's simply, you know what? It's just a bunch of data transformation that you need to do in, in order to create a logic. Mm-hmm. There's no need for you to build a, 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 like a, a new proprietary stack. You can build data pipelines. You can have your, uh, you can, you can follow your, your pipelines according to your templates that you have in GitLab, GitHub. So you basically, you, you approach to come to the logic outcome or whatever you need to create. Uh, platform centric uh, based on that actually reusing data. And by the way, these design patterns could be reused and these data sets could be reused. So mm-hmm. I'm not thinking from scratch proprietary and new application. Yeah, I see. Actually, I think I don't put, uh, I don't think these two approaches. So, so for example, as you mentioned, for the application based, so by having a GUI on top of the uh, let's say platform behind that we can feed different data. So, for example, now what at Peltorium we have, mm-hmm. so we have such a thing. So we have a service that you can use different data, and that in that interface we can use different algorithms to extract some knowledge from data. Or, for example, what Logical Clocks uh, does with Hopsworks, so it provides an interface gives you uh, this capability to use, for example, Spark or TensorFlow, PyTorch, and then use any data that it has in the HubSafes, in the data storage. So in the backend, it's kind of your... So the way that you use that platforms are based kind of data-driven way of using that application. But that application is kind of the service that you can buy or you can build yourself. So I don't see so so for me clear for, border between these. Uh, no, may, may, maybe may, maybe I think it's maybe it's even here we have we're working on 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 some sort of platform in the end like AWS or GCP mm-hmm. or something like that, and and we have data here, and now we have a software as a service Peltorion yes. module where I'm sending data in. And then, then sending it back. For me, this is still microservices modular thinking. Uh-huh. You call so, it microservices. Okay. I, I don't know what to call it, uh-huh. but but it, to me, it's like, this is modular thinking. Okay. I, I call on another service, right? But what what I meet is basically, and uh, now we have this new uh, topic. We are not at all on the platform. It's more like like someone wants to build a standalone application from scratch that doesn't really talk to anything, and then we hook up. I don't know. Maybe it's the same. Maybe it's not. I mean, like, uh, to me, it, it it it's to me it it doesn't really fit the platform paradigm. It's a little bit like it's a standalone. This is a standalone application. This is I completely agree. standalone. I agree. That would and be now we have hundreds of them, and we could have translated that into well, modular application or microservices that more worked well together. It could be, but actually, assume you want to extract some knowledge from data, but you can take advantage of any of the existing services. For example, you can use Peltorium service to apply some machine deep learning algorithm on your data, or maybe you can build a standalone application uh, to make your pipeline from data ingestion, data cleaning, mm. data engineering, and then make your model and so on. So, of course, you can build it from scratch by just using, for example, a Spark ML. Or 
use some existing frameworks, just put modular the components one after each other and then execute it. So, I mean, in short, can, can we simply summarize it as, of course, a modular approach is, is better as long as it doesn't provide too much overhead to the system exactly, itself, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah, so so maybe this is a some sim simple fundamental. Data-centric has more about to do modular building Lego pieces. But I don't it. use the data-centric no. to no. distinguish no. these two because even no. in the in that approach, you are still you may yeah. use data as a yeah, yeah. with a data-centric approach. You know. Mm. So I what's the correct definition of data-centric then? So if we what, what how would you frame it? Take advantage. You have data. You want to use data as a main source to extract some information and knowledge. Mm. I think it's you know for me at least if you if you perhaps not use the term data centric but data driven applications. Data -driven, yes. Then I would say that instead of doing manually rule based coding all the time for every piece of the functionality, you can actually automatically code some part of the system using data instead to become more data-driven, and that is basically machine learning in its core. Exactly. You, you ask the algorithm to learn from the data it is given to it. For a simple technique would be you, you define some, for example, some, uh, let's say, uh, hard code if and if then else, and say, okay, if you have this data, do this. If you have this data, do this, else do this. That would be quite traditional approach. But maybe you don't know how to define these rules. You ask the algorithm itself to extract that rule from the data. And I call it data-driven. Yeah, but, but now this, this helped me a little bit because I think the misconception in my definition of what I was talking about, I'm confusing two different concepts into one. And they are, they are not so, it's not so good. So in, in the one hand, I'm, I'm talking about... Uh, uh, Standalone application versus more modular mesh yeah, microservice architecture. So, mic this is microservice okay. architecture versus standalone application. Yeah. And now we are talking, and, and you need to keep that as one topic. Mm -hmm. yeah. exactly. And then I, we can talk about another coding paradigm. Do you hand write the code or do you, yeah. do, 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 you do rule based? Or can I actually do data-driven coding or basically I, I give the patterns and rules and then machine learning wise, I don't generate all the code. So, so it's actually two different, this is yes, two, two different, different. Fun of things exactly. that should, it's, but I think people mix these up even like I did now. With the data are not let's, experts let's like we, you. We separate them. I think, you know, it's important to think from one, you know, from a cloud computing point of view, where you try to abstract different layers when it comes to the hardware, yes. operating system, applications. Yeah. And then it's a different thing when it comes to, you know, building monolithic application, I think yeah. Klarna, sorry, and, <laughs> or, you know, the more microservice architecture yes. that we otherwise can have. And then thirdly, you can think about, you know, the... Uh, data-driven versus more manually coding approach. Yeah, but, but that's exactly. One is more about the architecture. Yes. The other one is more about how you yeah, react with the data, how you yeah. use data. But, but okay. the, I, I think these things is bread and butter to you guys, but to 99% of the enterprise world, this is not really clear. No, and and beca because we, we meet that when, what's the difference between data science, advanced analytics and AI? And people put them in the same corner and we, we try to talk about, well, we are talking about a new coding paradigm, data-driven coding. This has, you know, you can use that for, an, for, a, for a data science, uh, you know, advanced analytics project. Many, many people in business 
put these even together or say AI, you know, the, the analytical ladder. Yeah. So uh, could we please put some time and thought? But, but we have more, many topics now. I think we should move into some other topics as well. Yeah. That's okay. I just want to, I just want to nail down data driven um, coding. What's the coding paradigm here? We are not coding ourselves. I mean, I, I it's, think, I think it's a classical definition of what machine learning really is. Yeah. You know, without, without machine learning, you have to code all the rules yourself. If it means edge detection in Im- images or if yeah. it tra- means, you know, text or whatnot, and then instead you can use data to learn it automatically. And Yeah, you can define uh, three, let's say, eras in the history. One is a rule base that you define them manually. Mm-hmm. The second one is kind of you ask the model to learn the features, yeah. but you do you define the features of the data mm-hmm. manually. Mm-hmm. In the third era, which is that we ask the model to learn from the data and also extract the features from the data itself. Mm. So these are the three. Yeah, so that's rule-based, ML, DL. Yeah, and for me, I think the misconception here that when people say we do advanced analytics using ML and DL, it's a little bit like, it's like taking the next level of we do regression analysis. It's, an, it's just another way of finding an insight or prediction where in fact it's a new coding paradigm. I think people, your the people that you are referring to, I think they're mainly talking about the applied uh, machine learning, deep learning. Mm. I think yes. But let's try yes. to cover some other yes. topics as yes. well. Yes. Thank okay. you. <laughs> and I think, you know, you also mentioned logical clocks a number of times and hops works, yes. etc. Can you just perhaps for, for the listeners describe a bit what this logical clocks and what this hop works? Yeah, logical clocks. Uh, is a company that has a, a main product called Hopsports. That's uh, I'm not part of the logical class, but I'm working closely with them. So that's a, a platform uh, that gives you this facility to work with different uh, uh, processing data frameworks easily, such as Spark, Flink, uh, TensorFlow, PyTorch with a very simple and easy to use uh, interface. You can define projects. It's like a GitHub-like project. So for example, you uh, create a project in a GitHub uh, style. You upload your code and you can upload your data in the storage called HubsFS. And then, of course, you can share the code and data among different projects and then Using any of those platforms which are available in Hopsworks, you can process data. And of course, it supports different kinds of deprioritizations, data parallel, model parallel. And also, on the backend, it uses a very high performance uh, with, with a very low latency data store, which is called HopsFS. It's based on the, let's say, uh, HTFS, but it's a kind of, uh, Hops, uh, HTFS uses a kind of centralized um, it uses a centralized master to uh, single point of failure single point of it uh, they replace it with a distributed environment to make it scalable and also improve the performance and reduce the latency that's the whole uh, idea of the hops hops and there's a swedish company that was born out of six or kth or mix of the two or what was it or yes exactly and jim dolling is the yeah. ceo of the uh, the company he's also an associate uh, professor at kth and also the ceo of the company yeah 
Awesome. And, and perhaps a topic that you like, Henrik, as well, <laughs> is um, trying to distinguish other terminology questions like data warehouse, and data lake, and data mesh, and these kind of things. Oh. I'm not sure if you... No, it's... Uh, it's not a perhaps favorite topic of yours? Or? Mm, yeah, we may skip this. I'm not good <laughs> also in terms. <laughs> yeah, okay. Let, let, let's skip that then. But, um, I, th- I think, you know, one other topic that I had was more uh, when it comes to education. And... We have the traditional type of education that you do perform in universities. And it's mainly for students. And then we have the other thing, which is more education for companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to give an anecdote, I remember you know, in the Spotify days, we, we said, you know, we, we need to make more people familiar with data science. And then we said, okay, so how, how can we find an education that is suitable for employees Uh, at that company. And we tried to look around and we couldn't find anything in the Swedish universities. And we finally ended up uh, buying a very expensive workshop from England. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was like two, three workshops and people took them and then, uh-huh, is this it? Okay, so what do we do now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it didn't really work well. And it was really expensive. And it was strange that we couldn't find anything suitable in Sweden. And, uh-huh. and now in Sweden, you know, we do have a number of things happening, that, like the AI competence of Sweden, trying to find these kind of lifelong learning courses and other things. But I, I would love to hear what your thought is, you know, how can we better provide education for companies that is not only for students, so to speak? Do you have any thinking about this? Yeah, so I haven't thought uh, for the companies, but I think one of the most important thing to be able to teach and motivate people at the industry is to find relevant use cases in their domains mm-hmm. and then build the story of the course around that use cases that they have or the challenges that they have. Because I think one of the important factors to have a good course is to have a storyline of a very smooth flow from the first lecture to the end lecture and then you need to if you want to motivate the students to follow it it should be something relevant to them and of course in the companies you should build all your course around the use cases that they have i i fully agree with this i think this 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 is this is one of the key topics right uh, i i i sometimes i talk about what when you have a new piece of knowledge and you shoot it down in a well, where is the hooks that people can basically hook into the new knowledge so it doesn't just fall straight through? Mm. And the simple fact that you are then talking to people inside their domain, inside their comfort zone, uh, a use case they understand, that's the hook, right? And that it's it's motivating, it's something that solves my problem, but it also somewhere that I can relate to. I can't relate to this piece, but now I can relate to it because you made the connection t- for exactly. me. Exactly. Well, let me challenge you a bit, Amir, uh-huh. and say that, okay, imagine that you were an employee at a company, perhaps a tech company, medical company, or whatnot, and, and you simply want to make sure that you are keeping up to date with the latest AI in some way. Uh-huh. How would you, or perhaps how, how, how do you do that today? How are your personal way of educating yourself? As employee in the company. Yes, I was thinking primarily that, but potentially even as a professor at KTH. How do you keep yourself up to date? How do you educate yourself? Oh, so that's a good question. 
You're a bit cheating in KTH because you have students and, and you you know read papers so much because of that, etc. But still, if you were to just think, you know, you want to make sure that you actually can be ahead of other students and other people. How do you educate yourself? Yeah. So what I do, yeah, is kind of cheating. So, but uh, <laughs> yes. let's let's use that use that cheating. So I follow. Um, the the relevant conferences, the good conferences mm. in the domain. So I look at the state of the arts and follow the the groups that working in that domain and then so like research groups in different universities or companies or, or what? Yes, exactly. Research group in different companies and the universities. Uh, scheme the the papers. Uh, definitely I cannot go through all the papers, but at least by looking at the abstract introduction, okay, I know these are the domains mm. that are active now. And if I find them interesting, then I follow them. I define for myself not to go with the wave, but anyway, mm. there is no... <laughs> Hi. Yeah, the papers has all... Yes, always you have to follow if you want to be survived, if you want to be in the mm. uh, community, you need to follow that. I tried not to do that, but as so, long as I find some topic. But, but how would that be different? Um, we, we started out in, in Scania with data science. You know, how do I keep up to date? Or how do I, what is my adult continuous learning as a data scientist look like in Scania? Or how, how, is it individual? That is it an individual responsibility? To some degree, I think it is. But what, what do you do? If I'm manager of the group. I definitely organize some reading group. Mm, reading group. Good reading idea. groups. Yeah, reading groups to motivate people in the group. So maybe for each session, one person is responsible to look at the, for example, one conference, prepare a summary of the topics, not papers, the topics covered in that conference and give presentation to the others. Maybe it is not relevant to all the people uh, research topic in that group, but at least they know, okay, these are the active topics in the research. And if they find that topic interesting, they can uh, follow that. But it is different between academia and university, so maybe I push more in the university for the people in my group. For example, if there's some paper in that topic, ask them to read mm -hmm. that. But I think companies have other like businesses. The, the main difference is that they want to apply the, 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 the knowledge, not because it's cool or, you know, happy engineering, like Somil would have said, but because we have a concrete problem to, we need to build something, put something in production and we need to go. I'm trying to draw a line here between, you know, traditional education, you go to take a course, it could be a number of months or you take a whole program of a year, years, and, and then coming to, you know, how do you keep up to date? How do you do lifelong learning in a company? And then trying to see, you know, connect the dots, you know, you as a scientist, you know, you of course have a different way to uh -huh. obtain information uh -huh. and you're reading state-of-the-art papers. Yep. That's not really a suitable way for like non-experts uh -huh, to do it. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But could we find some middle ground here? Could we find a way to have people that are interested in data science in companies, but perhaps not can you know, take information from yeah, research papers directly? H 
can we find some middle ground here to to try to educate people and keep people up to date in AI, also in companies some way? And could universities potentially play a role in that? Mm -hmm. So it's a quite challenging question. Uh, it's, it's, so an, it's an impossible question. Because it's not. I have a, su a no, suggestion. No, no, yeah, but, but, okay. but, but, but then please, <laughs> why I think, then I ask, good, I'm going to answer your question. Mm. Are we talking about data engineers and data scientists in the company, or are we talking about middle managers or other domain experts? So, so first of all, if I mean, let's take one. Let's take is it a data um, scientist that, that should be keeping up to track, or is it one of the ma managers? I mean, let's start with the data scientist then. Yeah, because okay. data be scientists and data engineers would be different. For example, if as a data engineer, so you need to be familiar with the, let's say, the platforms, how they work yes. and so on. But maybe reading papers on that domain doesn't help you. Yeah. Maybe for you certify yourself on AWS and, and exactly, you know, but you don't care, for example, how the data actually, how the joint operation works in Spark. Yeah, but but, but to, t to take certifications in Spark, to take certifications in AWS, you know, to, you know, to, to try different things and use what the big vendors actually have puts a lot of good information out there, yeah. how to use their, I mean, like that's how they, you know, make sure you have successful people because they are knowing how to use your platform. Mm -hmm. So there's a vast, a lot of certification you can take, exactly. you know, back to the core vendors. But are certifications really the thing? And I'm trying to get to this because you, I'm don't, not take, yeah, you don't take certifications right anymore. I mean, you, you I'm just, not fan of the certificates, that's all. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, that's not the way that, that you keep up to date. That's not the way I keep up to date. I mean, you may do it as a student because you want to get a job, but what happens afterwards? How do you actually keep up to date afterwards? I think that's a big empty void that I think universities are missing out a bit on. I can talk about myself and how I educate me and mm -hmm. how I update myself. The main thing that I try to do anytime that I'm going to start a new topic is to find the big picture of the whole domain. Yeah. What does it talk about? <laughs> So otherwise, I may read different papers from different conferences, but these are just different parts of the puzzle. I cannot put them together. I need to have a big picture and say, okay, this paper belongs to that part of the puzzle and so on. For a state of the art or new topics, it's almost impossible mm. to make it easily unless you spend lots of time by having reading groups and then discussing with people and so on. But for the company, it's actually quite challenging because I'm not sure if they have time to do that. That's the point. That's the point. And unless you design a customized course for them based on their demands, and I think there is no generic answer to these questions. For example, if Ericsson says, I have this group that are working on 5G, with this particular problem. So then I try to find relevant papers that somehow oh. around that topic and then design the course based on. Oh. Otherwise, yeah, I think there is no generic answer for that question. Well, you had, a, you were, you were giving us the cliffhanger that you had the, you had a, I have the answer to everything. Yes. Oh, no, good. No. No. <laughs> 42? 42, yes. Exactly. <laughs> the Douglas answer. Yeah. No, no, no. Of but, course, but, of course but, not. But you had some, 
give us your hypothesis and let's shoot at it. Yeah. No, but, but it's one idea that we've been speaking about in the Swedish AI agenda in AI Sweden and another like national initiatives that we have in trying to just increase knowledge management and knowledge sharing in different ways. And it's actually based on use cases that we spoke a bit about before. And what we want to do is is try to have some kind of continuous way. It doesn't really work with one-offs, I would say. Mm-hmm. So a one-off would be that you have a single you know, or two workshops or you have a single course or you take an online course for a day or two and and take a cert- certificate. But but that's not really a sustainable way to gain information, I would argue. Mm-hmm. So a more a proper way would be if it's like a natural part of your daily work to just keep up to date. But how do you do that then? So I, I don't want to go into all of this discussion because it will take a lot of time, but the, the idea is then this kind of use case library, best practices work mm-hmm. that we're doing. So the idea is then uh, as soon as you do something, as soon as you have a pro- if you do a project with King, for example, yeah. and reinforcement learning, and, and you come to some interesting conclusion, what you would do then is try to share that knowledge somehow. And, and how do you share that knowledge? Well, you perhaps in try to concisely describe that use case and have some links to these are the people that yeah. did this. This is links to more information. And you have a very concise yeah. uh, piece of information. This is the, the thing we have done right now. And then you start to build up like a library of these use cases. Exactly. And you continue like once a week, or once a month or whatever, tries to talk about these things. And you can always go back and look through and try to find, you know, similar kind of thing. I want to do this now. Well, then you look through the library and you find potential use case. And I see, ah, here are links to more information. Here are the people. So that's a nice idea. Yeah. And, and so uh, do you use uh, such a, uh, let's say, approach at Platorium? We started to build that. We don't have a ready-made solution for it, but we're trying to, together with AI Sweden, uh, to work with that. Uh-huh. And, and uh, basically have a set of like practical AI use cases yeah. from different organizations throughout Sweden and really concisely described, not a long report that no one reads. Exactly. But a short, concise description and then links to more information. That's very important to yeah. give some hints where to read. Exactly. So since I haven't worked in the company, so I'm not familiar how actually, actually how much time people have mm-hmm. in the companies. But while I was at six, long time ago, so we built such a website. So yeah. these are the topics and these are the presentation related to that topic and people could follow that. And another alternative could be to have podcasts Podcast. like this. Exactly. <laughs> actually, I, th- I seriously think that. I think this, if you follow and, and have good podcasts that actually give very informative information, it's an easily digestible kind of format yeah. that people can hopefully learn a lot from. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And considering these uh, uh, Consume lots of uh, videos in YouTube. You can mm. also exactly. follow them. But, but and used to maybe end the topic on on uh, one note. It's been a, an uprise and completely explosion of the online mugs or whatever they called, mm. uh, like Coursera and all that. And we were talking here about education, but none of us mentioned what would have been the obvious. I mean, like people are making millions out of these mm. platforms of training now. And isn't that a choice or they don't really I, give us I think us universities are having missing out on something here. I think ah, universities you have Stanford could, have theirs. And, 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 well, no, and, uh, what I mean is KTH, for example, could have like a certified set of podcasts that they 
promote in some way and say, yeah. if you want to do this, this is something that we as an institution that is has very high branding and credit yeah. can stand for because it's so much yeah. noise out there. So it's super hard for normal people to find, you know, what should I listen to or what should I not listen to? But if you come up with like a, okay, use the term certified yeah. <laughs> uh, courses, podcasts or, or, or blog articles or what not to read, I think it could be super useful. Oh, what we is have, it, we is have it a number of the courses at least at KT here. Yeah. So, uh, Professor oh, Safe Heredy, so he, mm. he made a number of courses on distributed algorithms mm. a few years ago and are available. So I'm not sure if they give any certification now, but... But at least uh, as long as KTH stands behind yeah, it and say, exactly. you know, here's a recommendation from KTH. Exactly. I think that could be really and useful. I, I think it was for free. And since I believe in the... Uh, in open source and yeah. actually spread the knowledge because as much as because, I, because yeah. I, there, 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 there are a couple of worth mentioning here but like i think the phenomenon is called MOOCs, mega online yes. course massively online massively online something like that yes. course MOOCs, right yeah. and here it's that that market exploded uh, two to three years ago yeah. is it working or not do you know in a, in a flip or flop flip or flop what do you think very quickly flip or flop is it is it working I, if someone a, <laughs> is making a lot of money on it, is it working for the individual? In the beginning, actually, I, I just followed the one of these MOOCs in the very beginning. Yeah, I followed. I never applied for the certificate, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, long time ago I uh, watched some of the courses. But afterwards, I didn't follow mm -hmm. because because they're a bit slow. But it makes sense if you want to have a big audience, you need to consider. Okay, yeah, but I, I, someone is making money. I think that's more interesting. But I think there's I, one. I worth think that nobody is making money actually. I uh, this is a pyramid game. Coursera it, is making money. It's not even money. a pyramid game because it's so much noise out there. <sighs> yeah. So people basically would choose. I mean, we shouldn't look negative at it because if we're looking at uh, data literacy that we are actually yeah, talking about and, and uh, focusing on the AI divide. The online courses and certification is the way to go. We are actually providing knowledge to people with a very, very small mm -hmm. amount of money. I mean, most of the courses these days, you can get it for free. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is that is because the, uh, at the beginning, the educations and certified companies could have provided these educational platforms. Now, it's every single company in the world is providing some kind of a certification. If you're Microsoft, it's going to be Microsoft Azure. Yeah. If it's now going Snowflake, it's going to yeah. be Snowflake. And then if there is like a company that is actually focusing on frameworks, they will have their own certification and many other things. So people actually have like a variety and a palette of things that they want, that they can choose to. And if you look at, do people make money? It's basically like saying, do, do, do musicians make money out of Spotify? No, no, they don't. <laughs> no, but is it the same thing? Knowledge is basically right now like Spotify and music. But I, that I, I, but but just to close this off, I think there's actually one angle here we haven't touched, but I think it's actually one of the most important. Mm -hmm. And this is within the the, the the coders and developers that I have met that I think is cutting edge. They are in somehow all of them closely connected to their open source community. So basically it starts with the papers, but then essentially they hang out at GitLab and GitHub yeah. 
and they play around with, you know, basically they, they get find a hold of something, they, they, they spot the new cool thing, they go to the GitLab and GitHub library, and they play around with it. I mean, like I, I give you a concrete example, Frederick that was here from Rice. I love it. He, he sort of, he posts on LinkedIn, oh, I found a really cool thing, you know, and it's this uh, Git, GitHub, GitHub library, I could do this, la la la, and it goes viral. So I think the whole open to be a part of the open source community actively and contributing, I think that's a way to stay ahead of the game. And I, I would propose that uh, the old companies needs to learn the ways of the new companies. Mm -hmm. uh, that you know, if you really you know, what are the Google guys doing? Well, they are com com you know contributing to TensorFlow. They are doing this. So get, get into the game, even if you're at Scania, right? Yeah. I think that's how you learn. Yeah, mm, yeah. You, don't, you don't believe so in that? So actually, I agree with the with uh, the open source. So, and I myself, so at KTH, we are using a system for sharing the material with the students called Canvas, mm. but it is not open to them. Yeah, but it's open it's source in, inside but KTH. What, what I do, I use a GitHub. Mm. All my courses are are available on GitHub. So I put a page on GitHub.io for any courses oh, I that I. Bumps. Yeah, <laughs> to the students, and then yeah, why not? Why not? It should, it should be uh, free and available to all the people. And why don't you like that idea with going well, open, into source open source in general is good, but but the idea that people say just because Google just open source this model means that the any company can use it is very no, but, broad. Yeah. But that was not the question. The question no. is, but it needs it needs to be accentuated. I think that it's not as yeah. simple as simply having a piece of code repository published to make it useful for a company. That's no, so much more. But the core necessary. question we were talking about, how does people stay updated? That's the question. I, I, I'm not, what yeah. you are, you're, 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 I mean, that's a good point. So the, sure. the question I was, the, the recommendation I was giving, if you want to stay updated, maybe you should participate in open source and hang around in GitHub and GitLab. That was all, you know, yeah. beyond that. But as long as people don't confuse that with thinking that just because something is open source means. Yeah. You so you, when I, when I gave an example that was loaded, you, yeah. you, you jumped on my yes. example. So I should have stayed away from the example. No, no, you should just, you know, contextualize it properly. But, uh, okay. but I have a question from you. So what would motivate the people in the company to follow yes. this? Yeah. I think it's very challenging. And, and, and I think, you know, I, I'd love to have better support for lifelong learning. I and mean, some people like you and me and Henrik, we, we, we follow things in different channels yeah. and uh, blog articles and in, in open source in research article and whatnot. Not my but, boss tells me this. But how can we make companies do that in a more, you know, in a more easily ingestible format, so to speak, yes. that works on scale? Yeah. yeah. That, I think, is an open question that we haven't really answered yet. So some companies, for example, I know, for example, Spotify, or if I'm make, not mistaken, King. So they have, for example, one week of kind of challenge. Hack week. Hack week. Hack yeah, exactly. Yeah, hack week. So it's a good kind of motivating them to go and mm. then search for the state of the art and then implement it. And then say there is a competition. And then that would be a nice way. But I don't know, if, for example... Other but companies, big I, I, companies think, like I think universities are missing out on this. And, and if they don't, you know, start doing this, you know, the whole, you know, online movement with, you know, Joe Rogan's of the world will take over education in the future. But, so but we, we are, we are touching part of my postdoc uh, research, which uh -huh. is part of the answer to become data and AI ready. Mm -hmm. 
mm. as an organization, the organizational aspects, is actually to create a learning organization and learning culture by design, That's right? Mm. So, so how do you design learning, right? How do you de- so how do you design harvest from what what has been done in one use case in a company somewhere else? How do you design this? Because in the matter of fact, in the company, if it's not measured, if it's not invested, if it's not prioritized yeah. next to all the other competing priorities that you need to live with, it won't happen. No. So you need to design learning. Yeah. And it can be done, but it, you need investment in it. You need your, I mean, like Ericsson had their Ericsson University, always fantastic. You know, the big, uh, Scania has a fantastic uh, university internally around lean one of the best lean uh, courses and and, and, you know black belts you can take in the world so you need to take that concept into data science ultimately if you're serious so we just have 15 minutes left now so let's try to let's try to to keep uh, or take a number of topics but do it really quickly and and try not to go too deep into them Mm. Um, i'd like to start by the jeremy howard quote and um Jeremy Howard is this person, he, he started Kaggle, you know, the big uh, platform for, for doing competitions yes. with different t- data science, uh, data sets and problems. And then he, today he's the, the uh, president of Fast AI or and founder. And he said a quote uh, that is, most research in deep learning is a complete waste of time. Mm-hmm. And if I were to try to interpret what he means with that is that we see so much research in deep learning, especially in saying, who can beat the leaderboard for some specific data set and problem with 0.001% accuracy? When in reality, if some company want to really make use of some deep learning technique, there are so many other challenges that are so more important than having this you know, 0.1 or 0.01 additional point of accuracy. Mm-hmm. For one, would you agree with this, that you know, the research is a bit wrongly prioritized today in deep learning? As, yeah, I, I can say I agree with him. So again, I can repeat uh, what that quote about the big uh, data that I mentioned, the relation between big data <laughs> and teenager. And so, so I think many people or many research groups are working on deep learning without actually without uh, actually uh, doing real research on it and even before without doing without knowing why they need to apply those techniques mm-hmm. theoretically on, on deep learning concepts rather than what's the applied problem we are solving exactly the, the first question is that do you really need deep learning for that problem mm-hmm. for example you Assume you have a fraud detection problem. Mm-hmm. So, and you are working in a bank and say, okay, your boss said, okay, now go and use deep learning. But is it, uh, is it the right approach? Mm. Maybe, Maybe other te- techniques, for example, using the graph algorithm gives you, give you better results. So that would be one possibility. Another possibility is, of course, the lack of resources. So if you want to train a model and then improve the accuracy, so you need to have some resources. Actually, I listened to the uh, kind of videos that he described and that quote, and then I agree with him. He 
proposed uh, two kind of approaches that many companies that take advantage of those to to be able to use deep learning and have it improve it. So one is to use transfer learning, definitely. So if you can, for example, it doesn't make sense to train the bird from the scratch. So borrow bird, fine-tune it, and use it. Mm. Or <clears throat> active learning. So you have huge amount of time, huge amount of the data, and you cannot and you don't you cannot use all the data and you don't have enough resources so use a, a smart way to extract part of the data and then train the model so i agree so without using the resources the data the models in a smart way the energy that you put on the using and training the models would be a waste of time because you may not get in back uh, yeah, f- uh, fairly according to the time that you put on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I, I think, you know, for one people, when they hear that quote, for one thing that research is bad, and, and I think that's a wrong conclusions to make. Uh, right? Research so, is bad. Yeah, that, that research, you know, is, is a waste of time. And, and that's the, the wrong conclusions yeah, to yeah, make, yeah, right? Yeah, no. So research is, is really need, needed. And, of course. And it's, you know, the pursuit of knowledge, which we, we, of course, need to do. It's just that we need to focus on the right questions, right? Exactly. Exactly. Use the right tool for the right problem. Yes. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. Yeah. But yeah, without I, research, we cannot. And I like what you said before, that you really try to find you know, the, the real motivation for why are we doing this. And if you don't have that holistic understanding of it, you could potentially go in you know, completely wrong direction and, and waste your time. Yeah, and, yeah. and maybe that's the point then, that it's a little bit like uh, a lot of concepts. The concept itself it becomes more important than what it's used for. I, I take the analogy: uh, we need to become agile. You know, so banks go and say, as long as we become agile, it will save the world. Hold on, you know, what's you, what's your business going to do? When how are you going to solve it for your customers? Then agile can be an enabler on the way, but don't let agile or deep learning be the you know, the game in itself. And maybe that's back to research that you get too deep into your topic that this is the holy grail in itself when it's actually actually deep learning in relation to what. And if you always explore it like that, then you will find very interesting research areas about active learning, transfer learning in relation to solving this problem with deep learning. This becomes even more important. I think that's the bottom line. Cool. And should we take another topic that, yeah, we'll see if we can finish this in time. But yeah. Okay. So one topic we have spoken a lot about is a singularity. And, oh, yeah. and let's try to find a different kind of angle on this now. And, yes. And then if we take the two topics of AGI, you know, having an uh, artificial general intelligence versus, versus singularity, you know, some, some can say that, you know, AGI is uh, the time when we have super intelligence and we have a type of AI system that can be more general than the human brain can be. Mm-hmm. And singularity, I, I would argue potentially, and please uh, comment me on this, but singularity is a bit different and that can happen much sooner, I would argue, is when we lose control of systems. So at some point it can be that we, meet, we lose control of how an AI system is uh, take over take over the you know the market the, the the stock market for example or it can be that uh, singularity happens when 
drones go rogue and you know are killing people that may not you know they're not supposed to or it basically means the loss of control in some way mm-hmm. H- have you th- thought anything about these terms you know what does sing- singularity versus agi mean and wh- what's your thinking about I, this I, actually, more I've philosophical never think, terms i've never thought about the difference but i think human always smarter than the machine so i'm not sure if always like always always or just right now so far (laughs) (laughs) yes and i think i think that uh, difference actually i cannot say for sure but Mm -hmm. i think with a high probability we keep that distance for future but anyway so if you were to guess a date on agi you know a, a point where single AI system, I'm not saying a single AI model, but a single AI system can basically beat a human for most tasks. What, what can, can you just estimate a, get, a date for that? Are we speaking 10 years, 50 years, 100 years? Thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Maybe if we have quantum computing. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> no, <yes. laughs> Yeah, so then we may actually achieve but it. But it's always so difficult with this question because what is human intelligence, right? Because we, in some ways, machine intelligence can be better than humans on, on narrow tasks already. Do we know this? So what is it that makes up human-like intelligence? Yeah, and, and general intelligence, humans are far from general. Yeah, uh, th- this is the point, yes. right? Human intelligence is not really no, it's superior. Not maybe they, it's not really superior at all. It's, it's maybe superior, superior, but it's not general. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, no. maybe they beat people, human, for many tasks, but some tasks, I'm, I don't think so. For example, these are relevant to emotions or yeah. to the kind Can you give an example? Yeah. Happy, sad, love. Happy, sad, no, love. No, exactly. No, I'm going to try to define it a bit more clearly. What do yeah. you mean happy? Yeah. No, for example, how can we... I can build a rule-based system with two lines. If zero, sad. If one, happy. <laughs> now I have a, hap- a system that can be happy and sad. Okay. But uh, happiness doesn't have a fixed definition. No, not for humans either, right? Yeah, so that's what I mean. So, for example, for two people, so you as a human may realize that how to behave with a kid to yeah, calm him or her or happy them and so on. But maybe but, maybe but, this simple it would be simple for the machine, but something more emotional. I don't think uh, but, but, the, can but something that has human-like intelligence, AGI, does it have but a soul? It, I think human level intelligence is different from AGI though. But, but yeah, let, let's call it uh, Jan Lacun, you know, the mm-hmm. pioneer in deep learning and uh, director of AI in Facebook. He's, you know, he's really being clear that, you know, we shouldn't use the term AGI for human level intelligence because it's two different things. Mm-hmm. And human level intelligence is very narrow and has a very specific like computer vision or human vision kind of uh, narrow intelligence. But AGI is actually much more general than human-level intelligence. Mm-hmm. But in any case, our AI is far from human-level and it's super far from AGI as yeah. well. Yeah. No, but yeah. but, but right. if, I haven't really thought about it before, but if, if we talk about intelligence in a robot on this level, does it, does it still mean that the robot has not have a, can it, does it need to have a soul, feelings? Does it have feelings or not? Is human-level intelligence meaning that the machine has feelings? 
because it can have, it can it can reason with me it can it can be smart it can be intelligent but uh, but eq wise it emotionally i mean like okay you can you can even sense my emotion yeah. so they can respond to it so in some ways it needs to be able to be empathic uh, the machine needs to be empathic to my emotions mm-hmm. does it have still emotions probably not and what what do we do with the beliefs so for example the reasoning behind person with some which is <clears throat> values who, and beliefs who, who doesn't believe in god and someone who believes in god so maybe the reasoning behind them are totally different yeah the value the value the values, the are values. and then so the meanings are different for them and then when we talk about the super machine so so then so is to be a human level intelligence is Does it have value? You know, does it have its own ethics? Does yeah. it have all this? Yeah. Because that's part of moral. Does it have moral? Yeah, that's the point, yeah. I'm super eager to, to say what I so think. So what do you yeah, think, what, what <laughs> no, you, what no, you think no. yourself? When, well, when? Let's, let's take it easier, you know. If you have um, um, <laughs> a car yeah. and it's a cold winter night and it doesn't start, Would you call and say that this car right now is sad and tired and doesn't want to start? It's sick. It's sick. It's sick. It's sick. Yeah. I mean, this is the type of anthropomorphizing, you know, yeah. using human terms to describe a complex system. Yes. I would argue that humans don't have like an inherent thing called an emotion or feeling. It's a way of using our language to describe a very, very complicated system that humans has. And it's very useful because it understands, you know, if you are yeah, especially true. angry one day, it's very useful to me to use the term angry just as, way, uh, just as well as it's useful for me to use that term about a car <laughs> that is, you know, doesn't want to start a mori- morning. And I say, the car is actually very tired or sad today. <laughs> it's a useful way to describe a very, very complicated system. It doesn't really describe the reason for it. No. It's just like a very abstract description of a very complicated system. Uh, but because that's the, c- the complexity with the human, right? I mean, like from what I'm at, I'm, I'm angry, I'm annoyed with you because mm. my brain neurons has done something. Yeah. Yeah. My my face got red, <laughs> my fist got punched, you know. But in the end, the physicalities and my emotions, how, you know, if you think about your emotions, there are neurons going on in here. Yeah. Exactly. So, yes. but, but how, so when we say human like intelligence, you probably can have all the things like this, but be completely cold on the inside or, yeah. or, 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 or can you? So it's very, very, you know, philosophical or, you know, yeah. but it's fun. It's but fun. It's fun with philosophy it's fun. sometimes. Yeah, or something such as for some actions, such as crying. Yeah. How you interpret it, so it could be based on the happiness or sadness. Yeah, but it, but in one way, why it's quite interesting to philosophize like this and have fun with it is because it sort of demystifies and makes a joke out of some of these propaganda type arguments. Or machines will be like humans. No, it will never be the same. So it's a little bit like let's focus on you know what what you know singularity. The definition I think that you highlighted: when do we lose control? Is more scary than you know the more philosophical idea of what is human-like intelligence because we can lose control much earlier. So, but I, I think just by having a, a discussion like this, it also highlights: well, it is a machine, right? So, does it really matter? 
And, and just to end, you know, on a more positive note as well, because yeah. we often end on these kind of negative, dystopian kind of no, discussions. I, and, I, mean, I mean, you just killed emotion, so <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> but thinking about, you know, we have a pandemic right now and we have, you know, we, we don't want this to happen again. And we know that uh, a data-driven approach using machine learning and deep learning can help <coughs> with things like, you know, drug discovery and alleviate a lot of the you know, overload that we have in the health sector today and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And we have a big, you know, economic uh, impact that will happen now in coming years. Some people say, and it would be fun to hear what you think, Amir, what is the, the best way to, you know, find the pos positive uh, use of AI for the society? And, and I would argue, and this is that, you know, humans are today certainly much better than AI in some ways. And AI is better than humans in some other ways, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to going through a large amount of data, yeah. which humans can't really do in a good way. But AI is very superficial and humans are much more in-depth and have a broad generic knowledge that and a reasoning capability that, that AI have not. So if we combine the two, we can find the best of both worlds. Would you agree that this would be a... Yeah, of course, both AI and human can support each other. But one possibility that we can use is to predict. You know, one of the main capability of the AI is to predict the future. Yeah. And then from that perspective, it can help human to prevent such as such catastrophe catastrophics to happen again. Sounds great. Cool. Amir, what's next in your life, either professionally or personally? What's, what's Looking happening? forward to become a docent, of course. Yeah, so yes. that's, uh, that's <laughs> the first thing. But yeah, so professionally, as I mentioned, so I'm really interested to enable non-AI or non-expert people uh, to be able to use machine learning and deep learning and mm -hmm. try to make it possible for more people to take advantage of the technology. Yeah. That's my plan. Sounds great. Amir, is there anyone that you would recommend to come on this podcast? Someone that you perhaps would love to listen to yourself? Oh. So that's a good question. And so many of the, my colleagues are actually, mm -hmm. I like to listen to them. And also I like to listen to Jim Darling. Mm -hmm. yeah, Jim Darling. From Logical Clux. A good That's idea. a good idea, actually. Yeah. He's working on some cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what else? Is he working actually, on that? Can, sorry. Actually, actually, we can we can get him, I guess. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh. But how long has he been working on this uh, the project, or the when when did he start up the uh, the company? I'm just curious. 2015, 16. Yeah. Okay. If I'm not mistaken. Anyone else that you can think of? Thanks again for inviting me and actually I can say that I'm interested in AI, I'm interested in technology, but I think life is not only AI and technology. What, what do you say? Are, are you cursing now on the AI podcast? <laughs> there are other dimensions in life that we need to... Yeah. That's very true, very yeah. true. Good time. Yeah. So, but but uh, actually, that means you need to come back because this is an AI after work. So we talk with AI people yes. about every topic the person wants to talk about. So if you want to talk about fishing, let's talk about fishing. <laughs> AI and fishing. 
Oh, without ah. AI. Non-AI fishing, perhaps. I don't know. Awesome, Amir. It's been a true pleasure, as, as usual, to, to speak with you. And uh, let's. Uh, I hope that we can have another uh, episode at some point in the yeah. future. Yeah. Thanks again for inviting me. Thank, Thank you, you so Thank much you. for coming. Thank, Thank you. Cheers. Thank you.